Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, I know I start each weekly podcast with this, but uh, hey, it seems to work. So uh, if you are not subscribed to the podcast and are hearing it some other way, uh, please subscribe with your favorite podcasting app. Uh, If you are subscribed and like it, please go and uh, write a review uh, and let others know about it. And if you have any feedback at all, please let us know. Uh, we recently got feedback from someone saying that our regular co-host Hirsch uh, talked too much over me. <laughs> so that made uh, the listener, as she said, unable to hear all of the good ideas. Um, so we've been laughing about that all week since so we got that message. Um, we will try to make sure that we don't talk over our good ideas going forward. Um, on today's show, uh, on to today's show, that is, uh, we for years on TechDirt, we've talked about issues related to internet platform responsibility and content regulation. And starting, I guess, about a year ago, there's been, uh, I guess, greater and greater focus on this particular issue. Uh, we've obviously written about it a ton on TechDirt and have done a bunch of podcasts on it as well, including our recent one on on what Facebook could possibly do, if anything, uh, if, it, if it were true that the Russian government trolls really had influenced the last election. Uh, and, you know, it, it should be no surprise why there's been so much attention on this issue of late. Uh, we've sort of hit a perfect storm of people focused on things they dislike on the Internet, uh, leading to both politicians and the general public suddenly getting well, I would say annoyed about some of what's online, though not always agreeing on what it is they're really upset about or what to do about it. Uh, With that have come more and more serious calls for platforms to take responsibility, is the way it's usually phrased, uh, for or for the government to come in and regulate the platforms in some ways to sort of force them to take responsibility. Of course, as we've noticed for years, when people sort of first come to this issue, they jump to a few conclusions about uh, what that will mean and what the impact will be without necessarily thinking through the actual consequences or possible alternative solutions to, to the problems that they see. And that's why I think it's important to listen to people who have actually been studying this stuff for many years and who have a better sense of why the easy answers often create more problems and to discuss the real consequences of some of the solutions thrown around. Now, someone who has been studying these questions for many, many years, uh, mainly in the copyright space, but beyond that as well, is the law professor Anne-Marie Bridey from the University of Idaho College of Law, and who is also an affiliate scholar at Stanford Center for Internet and Society. Uh, She's one of the people that I frequently look to for clear, rational thinking whenever discussions on these topics come up, so I'm thrilled to have her on the podcast. Uh, Welcome, Anne-Marie. Thank you. It's great to be here. So um, let's start with uh, a little bit of your background, which is how did you first start working on these issues and researching them? 
Yeah, well, so I'm an internet lover from way back, um, and I'm also a music lover and a gadget lover. And uh, I started law school just as Napster was getting sued by A&M Records, right? So that case yeah. started in 1999. I started law school uh, in 2000. Um, and really, you know, my interest in music and the internet and the law sort of all coalesced around that litigation. Um, and I just became really interested in sort of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing and copyright uh, and how copyright was or was not a sort of productive way uh, of working through issues in the digital environment. And so uh, with that, I started down a pretty long road of research on digital copyright enforcement in the face of evolving technologies. And probably for the last 10 years, you know, I have been following the copyright industries, you know, as they have sort of pivoted uh, and change direction, you know, as they've tried to sort of deal with this problem of whack-a-mole yeah. uh, with, with, you know, massive copyright infringement. You know, and I'm finding as, as concerns sort of shift away from copyright and toward the regulation of speech and content online more generally, um, that sort of the lessons I've learned from following the copyright industries as they respond to these issues of content regulation are sort of pretty easily translatable into issues around other kinds of content regulation. So for example, hate speech mm -hmm. uh, or revenge porn um, uh, or terrorism incitement. Yeah, yeah, and I think there, there are a lot of parallels and it's, it's been sort of um, interesting if, if slightly uh, distressing, I guess, to see how many people, you know, when they start looking at these things, which, which I think, most people quite reasonably agree are are bad kinds of things, you know, terrorism, revenge porn, um, hate speech, you know, things that, that we generally don't like. But it, it's it's been distressing how quickly people leap to this idea that, well, you know, you know, the, we have this DMCA notice and takedown provision and they say, well, that seems to work. Let's just apply that kind of setup to everything else um, without recognizing how much of a disaster in some ways uh, the DMCA notice and takedown has been. Right. So, you know, one of the nice things about notice and takedown, I guess, is that of, of you know, of all of the solutions for regulating online content in a way that sort of allows for a back and forth between people who might be taking down content mm -hmm. and people who are complaining about that content and people who would rather have that content stay up. Um, the notice and takedown framework at least has a very sort of scripted set of procedures yes. that everybody can follow um, for sort of trying to resolve disputes over copyright infringing content. Um, but one of the problems when we try to sort of take that template and, and sort of overlay it on other kinds of content, you know, is that, you know, when content is copyright infringing, you can sort of, that's a, you know, is it copyright infringing or not? It's not an entirely uh, straightforward proposition to identify what's infringing speech and what isn't, you know, but um, fair use questions aside, and those can be complicated, at least sort of there is a general agreement about what constitutes infringing speech mm -hmm. uh, and what is not. Uh, whereas, you know, you get into these other categories and you know, the definitions are a little bit more amorphous, right? Like right. we might not all be able to agree on what is hate speech, right? Or what is terrorism incitement? Right. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, and some of the other problems we've seen in the DMCA framework is that a lot of people use that system kind of in bad faith, right? They, <laughs> yes. 
right? So they they say, hey, they think it's like a universal legal mechanism for just getting stuff off the internet that they don't like. Right. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you talk to lawyers and people who, you know, do content regulation for a lot of these platforms, they'll tell you that a lot of the DMCA requests they see, you know, have either nothing to do with copyright infringement at all, um, yeah. You know, or the notices are defective in various kinds of ways that make it difficult for the platforms to actually effectively respond to them. Um, yeah. You know, so there are lots of issues over the years in the copyright space with takedown abuse, um, you know, and, and with people, you know, using uh, using copyright complaints as a way of essentially trying to censor speech with which they disagree. Right. And either there's a legitimate sort of copyright-ish claim underneath that, or there's not. Um, but, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, people will just use that as an instrument for, uh, you know, for for just sort of getting rid of speech that they don't like. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I mean, you made a really good point that, you know, at least with the notice and takedown process, there's, you know, it's, these are the, the safe harbors in, in DMCA 512, which are very clearly, well, for the most part laid out. There's been some litigation necessary to clarify some elements yeah, just, of it. just a little litigation necessary. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but at least there, there, there is a process. But then also related to that, a sort of second, secondary good point, which you touched on, is the fact that, like, you know, the boundaries of copyright itself and what is infringing are at least laid out in in the law as well. And again, like with an awful lot of litigation, even more litigation to clarify right. what, what those boundaries are. But but at least that that's written down. When, when you start talking about a lot of these other things, we have no basis for, you know, and, and, and so like, you know, in, in theory, could you create laws that, that do that? Possibly, but you're going to then create, you know, a massive amount of litigation as the boundaries for those things are then determined. Um, and then, but you know, most of the proposals, and, and certainly one that we've we've spoken about before, like SESTA, which which would impact some of this, um, you know, don't even have the kinds of uh, clear process and boundaries on the on on what platforms should do. So it becomes this really amorphous situation, uh, which you know, t to me, certainly has the potential for for even worse abuse than than the DMCA, which is at least you know has you know, has much more um, clear boundaries, even if they're not not perfectly clear. But but so many of the other solutions that, that people are, are coming up with seem to me at least to, to um, you know, have no clear boundaries or, or very, very fuzzy boundaries. Right. I think that's right. I mean, if you look at, you know, the sort of the, the idea behind SESTA is that we want platforms to, you know, sort of take a more active role in preventing uh, sex trafficking. And I think everybody can agree that sex trafficking is a terrible thing and that we, you know, would like for there to be less of it in the world. Yeah. Right. Yes. But, uh, you know, the, the, you know, questions come up about, you know, well, what what is content that uh, promotes sex trafficking? Right. And then, uh, you know, at what point uh, are providers sort of legitimately chargeable with knowledge that that kind of content is on their sites and how do we expect them to deal with that yeah. content. Um, and so, you know, there are, the copyright issues are kind of easy because, you know, copyright infringing speech is unlawful speech, right? right. Um, and uh, I don't really know what the law is around sex trafficking in terms of speech that promotes sex trafficking, right? But obviously sex trafficking as conduct 
right, yes. is is illegal and criminal. Yes. Um, and so speech that is promoting criminal activity is also sort of problematic speech that we don't want appearing online. But then, you know, as you point out, and I think, you know, you you did a recent uh, you did a recent blog post about this, right? I mean, w- when there are platforms like blogs that allow users to comment, yeah, um, you often get a lot of spam, and a lot of that spam is often sort of has uh, sort of sexually explicit content in it, yeah, uh, right? Or is trying to sort of hijack your users and your readers and redirect them to some site, you know, where they can, uh, you know, where they can, I don't know, have access to. Uh, you know, advertisements for sexual encounters or whatever. Right. Um, right. And at what point is it reasonable to ask you as the, you know, as the person who maintains that blog to be sort of responsible for all of the spam uh, and for all of the, you know, for all of the content that your users are going to post, right? And then, you know, you take the comments on your blog and I don't know how many you get, maybe a couple of thousand a week. Yeah, we're. I mean, we get about two thousand a day if you count the spam, which okay. is a significant portion of that. All right, yeah. so so that's like thousands a week, right? Yeah. And then if you multiply that, you know, for larger sites, you know, like you know, yeah. Facebook and Google, you're talking about you know millions. Yes. Of posts a day. Yes. Um, and so when you're dealing with things at that kind of a scale, you know, it's it's very hard to know how to make appropriate judgments about what content to block, right? Yep. And and in those kinds of situations where there's legal liability associated with the presence of content on platforms, the platform's natural response is going to be to overblock. Right, because right, that to, minimizes the liability risk. Right, right. So, and, and there's really no downside to overblocking because usually terms of service for these sites say that, you know, Basically, you're out of luck if we remove your content, right? right. I mean, the, the terms of service on all of these major social media platforms will say basically we reserve the right at any time, right, to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to take down content that we think violates our community guidelines. And that will consider, uh, you know, that'll include things like, you know, abusive content and, you know, how do you define what's abusive, Right. So the, the platforms themselves, basically, because of their terms of service, have no liability to users for content that gets taken down. Right. Right. Uh, and so if the law creates a situation where they are facing risk and liability for leaving content up, right, you combine that with their not having any liability to users for what they take down. Right. And you just kind of have a recipe for letting these algorithms kind of, you know, run amok. Yeah. Uh, taking stuff down. And we all know that for as much as, you know, people think that AI is going to take over the world pretty (laughs) soon, that actually the state of this technology is really, you know, not as advanced as we would have it be for natural language processing, uh, right? So these algorithms, you know, don't very well understand the context in which statements are uttered, right? And, um, And that lack of ability to understand context is really kind of fatal when you're trying to do responsible content regulation. Yeah, and, we, and we've certainly seen and we've written about a, a bunch of these stories where oftentimes you're seeing cases of um, uh, you know content being blocked or people being suspended for, say, reporting about 
abuse and harassment that they faced. And so, you know, somebody, you know, was was harassed or, or abused somehow, and they would write about it on Facebook. And because Facebook, you know, the AI or or some person very quickly sort of skimming over the, the text sees these sort of keywords and freaks out and they suspend those accounts. And, and that's like the exact opposite, obviously, of what you want. You know, you want the people who are the, the, the victims of, of harassment to be able to speak out and, and, and to have them being the ones who are shut down. And this is not like a, a one-off thing. This is, you know, over and over again. You know, I, I think last month I had written a post about it where I pulled together three examples that I had just come across randomly in the previous week, you know, and, and if I'm just, you know, sort of randomly coming across them that quickly, uh, you know, you know that it's happening many times every day, basically. Right. I mean, these are folks who are just sort of quoting back objectionable content, right, right as a way of flagging the fact that they have been subject to this kind of abusive uh, treatment online, right? And, and they're quoting it as a way of trying to criticize and expose it, right? And yet at the same time, you know, the, the, the algorithms can't tell the difference between that and the initial appearance of that speech, right, right, which was for harassing or attacking purposes, right, and so yep. it's just a, a kind of lack of refinement or subtlety, uh, you know, in these takedown mechanisms is really causing a lot of trouble. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, given the scale at which these sites operate, it's just I think literally operationally impossible uh, to have people review this stuff. Yeah. You know, and so I, I don't know. I mean, we've really reached a point, you know, at which I look at all of this and I think, you know, we are, we want these sites to moderate content, right? But given the scale at which they operate and sort of the available human resources and the current state of machine learning technology, it, it kind of can't be done. Yeah. Right. And so some people are proposing, I think the most recent proposals I saw in Senator Franken. Uh, I think mentioned this in a hearing uh, in the course of the last week was that we should be subjecting these platforms to net neutrality principles, right? The same right. kinds of principles that we use for broadband providers and the, the kinds of providers who basically are the pipes of the internet, right? right. And, and they're basically treated kind of as uh, sort of for limited purposes as common carriers, which means you just, you know, you just carry the speech you get. You don't get to pick and choose uh, what what people are sort of, you know, pushing through your pipes, right? And the problem with this net neutrality uh, proposal for edge providers like, um, you know, like Facebook and Twitter mm -hmm. uh, is that it's, it's kind of, you know, the, these platforms are being subject to conflicting demands, right? Yeah. So on the one <laughs> hand, you have, okay, we're going to take a net neutrality approach, and that's going to ensure that you know, all of the lawful content that is uploaded to these sites is going to stay on the sites, right? But at the same time, these sites are being criticized for right. hate speech and revenge porn. And well, the revenge porn's not lawful content in lots of ways, but, uh, you know, for hate speech and abusive speech and uh, all of that stuff, yeah. right? So it's like, we, we want you to carry all of the speech that's legal, but then, but we don't want you to carry the speech that's harassing or abusive or hate speech. It's like, well, that harassing and abusive hate speech is actually lawful speech. Right. Right. Um, you know, and then it's like, well, we, you know, we want to stop Russian meddling in the elections, right? But at the same time, net neutrality principles would say that whoever's giving you content, you have to post. You don't get to pick and choose between the speech that's there and you don't get to pick and choose between speakers. Right. 
right? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to, I mean, the, the, the Franken thing was, uh, and, and it was, uh, it wasn't a, a, a hearing. It was, uh, he gave a speech at a, at a conference oh, okay. where, he, where he brought it up. And, and um, the speech itself is, is, it's really, it was sort of almost incomprehensible, honestly. I was a little surprised. And, and you know, I often think Franken is, is sort of very thoughtful and very interesting and, and careful in what he says. And, and this was not that, <laughs> you know, because it, it the, the speech itself sort of went all over the place. And, and it, it felt like he was sort of like tossing out like, you know, easily quotable quips, but, but with no coherent concept. Like it really jumps around quite a bit and like, in a really sort of odd way there, there was no cohesive theme but he brings up this idea of you know applying net neutrality principles to platforms in the same speech that he also complains about russian interference and you almost it's it's not clear but you almost get the feeling that he seems to think that like a net neutrality principle would somehow stop the russian interference when actually it would do the exact opposite exactly and so it feels like it is a very, very confusing speech, and I'm not quite sure how how it came to be, or you know what what exactly was the the thinking behind it. And it just feels like you know some people, and and admittedly, like net neutrality can be a somewhat amorphous concept for some people, and so it's it's often feels like uh, net neutrality is like you know let good stuff happen on the internet and so right. Right. so so if if that's the your sort of understanding of net neutrality then i could see where you could think like oh if we have net neutrality it'll get rid of bad stuff on the internet. but but it, 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 that's such a weird construction and certainly you know senator franken knows what net neutrality is so i it was a really really confusing situation but it's it's you know i think it it, it is sort of representative of this larger issue where all these people are like you know, we want the internet to thrive, but we don't want this bad stuff. And and nobody has any concept of how do you deal with the bad stuff. So they just start throwing stuff out there. And and sometimes you get these, you know, things like, well, you know, net neutrality for the platforms, which makes no sense. Uh, right. And no, so, I mean, it's like sort of, you know, there's this injunction to fix it. Right. It's right. Like you, you're you platforms, you are phenomenally wealthy, which is true. You are phenomenally powerful, which is true. You have incredibly outsized influence. Right. On everything that happens in the culture. And that is also totally true. So there's this notion. It's like, well, with great power and wealth comes great responsibility. <laughs> right. 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 But uh, but it's like uh, we just want you to fix it. Right. And right. Uh, and as policymakers, we'd rather you just did it on your own so we don't have to actually slog through what a law would look like that right. would require you to fix what is essentially just an incredible morass. And, 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 you know, what I think is important to note here, too, and which which often almost actually almost totally gets overlooked in these discussions is that, you know, CDA 230, the, the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is the law that many people are attacking to try and, you know, force these platforms into into, you know, taking responsibilities, they say, actually, you know, is sort of well positioned as is to encourage that kind of thing because it has the sort of good Samaritan clauses that says if you, uh, you know, in good faith moderate your platform, that doesn't add any liability. And that's why, you know, these platforms, the big ones, certainly Facebook and Google already heavily moderate those platforms. And, and often, you know, as we've discussed, not always, not always doing a very good job of it. Um, but, but they can do that without liability because of the protections of CDA 230. And some of these changes, you know, in the belief that it'll cause the, the platforms to act better will actually take away the incentives 
um, for them to do the kind of moderation that they're already doing. Yeah, and, the and incentive so, the incentive issues around Section two hundred and thirty are kind of interesting ones, right? Yeah. So if you if you go all the way back to nineteen ninety six, right, when the internet was in its infancy, and I think the idea behind two hundred and thirty was same as the idea behind five hundred and twelve of the DMCA, which is. Right. We really want the internet to grow and thrive. We want it to be a place for, you know, commerce and goods and services. We want it to be a marketplace of ideas, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. so in order to do that, we are going to insulate all of these different kinds of intermediaries from the kinds of legal liability that would really prevent them from being able to grow and thrive. Um, and so we get CDA 230, which, as you point out, has sort of two components to it, right? One component is that there's no liability for intermediaries for the third-party content that goes up, right. right? And the other side of it was that there would be no liability for these intermediaries for third-party content that comes down. Right. Right. And so the idea was, I think, back in 1996, that we wanted to get sort of diverse kinds of speech cultures at the edges of the Internet. Right. And we would do that by allowing different platforms to have sort of different kinds of community standards for what was appropriate and acceptable speech, you know, for their platforms. And at the time, I remember in, in like the early 1990s, right, there was all this concern about speech on the Internet that was harmful to minors. Right. right. And how do we prevent kids from being exposed to sort of obscene and pornographic and content on the Internet that really is not appropriate for them? Right. And so one of the ideas behind CDA 230 was, you know, we want to encourage sites to sort of, uh, you know, to, to moderate content in a way that would make it, you know, family friendly or, you know, that, that, that not every site would be a site at which you might expect to find explicit Right. You know, or controversial content of yes. some kind or another. But I think in some ways what happened there, you know, was the kind of libertarian ethos of the Internet generally said, well, you know, we want to just have all of the speech that there is. Right. And so there was this notion that we should really have speech norms for the Internet that look a lot like the First Amendment, which is very, you know, speech permissive. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that for 20 years, we, we got sort of all of these platforms that were that were scaling sort of rapidly and that were being allowed to scale because of the immunities provided by 230. Right. But rather than really carefully developing all of these norms around content and community guidelines, they sort of had all of these community guidelines, but enforced them in really kind of sporadic um, ways. Right. And, and, and not really subject to sort of rigorous or transparent or consistently applied standards. Right. And I think like over time, as the content on the internet started to get more and more toxic on some of these platforms and the speech norms and the culture started to shift, um, you know, I think there was a sense that uh, maybe platforms weren't doing enough, right? But the problem is in the, in the interim, they've scaled to become so huge, right? So they were, they were sort of uh, accepting everything, not really sort of keeping pace in terms of the development of their own practices for enforcing community guidelines, right? So now I just feel like we're in this strange place where they've, they've reserved in their terms of service the right to do all kinds of content regulation and moderation to keep, you know, sort of bad content off the sites, right? But they've never, they've never gotten in place operationally the kinds of internal systems that you would need 
to enforce those policies in a kind of consistent, transparent way that allows due process for users who disagree with removal decisions, right? All of that stuff is like baked into the DMCA notice and takedown process, right? But we we don't have it for all of these other kinds of content removals. Yeah. Um, And so often you get platforms now, Twitter's a great example, just removing content in this incredibly reactionary way, right? Yeah. So some some post that's really objectionable will go viral, right? And immediately Twitter will respond by suspending the account, right? And then like immediately on Twitter, everybody will be like, God, they just arbitrarily suspended this account. Right. <laughs> right. And there's no and like and 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 if you're watching this kind of unfold in your Twitter feed, you're like, you can't even tell what's going on because you know the, the account's suspended. You can't any longer see the tweet unless somebody screenshotted it and um, you know, the person whose account that is sometimes doesn't really even get an explanation for why the account's yeah. been suspended. It's just like you violated our terms of service. We're suspending your account. It's like, well, there are lots of different ways you can violate terms of service. And which way did I, you know, which way was I guilty of? And right. right? So it's 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 just this sense that there are these kinds of uh, the, the enforcement's really arbitrary. Right. And I I think that users and people are right to be sort of a little outraged about that, you know, and short of telling the platforms to fix it. You know, I think we can (laughs) at least say, you know, that you guys need to do better at at sort of explaining what kinds of speech are not welcome on your platform. Yeah. Right. Uh, And when you remove speech for being not welcome on your platform, you need to tell people why you removed it and what kind of speech it was. And you need to give them a shot at saying, you know, I think you were wrong to take that down. I think you should put it back. And, you know, so to the extent that Section 512 provides at least a framework for having that that conversation unfold. Right. Yeah. uh, In a systematic way, like like that's a good thing. Yeah. Right? But but I worry about saying, you know, uh, we're just going to impose liability, you know, on platforms for having bad speech on their platforms that they don't take down. Right. And and we can try carefully to sort of define the kind of bad speech that we think should be illegal. Right. For example, speech that facilitates sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. Right. But then you get into the difficult kinds of line drawing that you and I were talking about uh a little bit earlier, right? It, it, you know, what does it mean to facilitate sex trafficking on your site? Does it mean that you don't get that speech down within 12 hours? Does it mean that you leave it up for two days? Right. Um, you know, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's, I, we're at a really hard moment. I mean, I, I love the internet, right? <laughs> yeah. and I, I'm like an internet law scholar, because in the early days, I thought the internet was just the most wonderful revolutionary thing in the best possible way, you know, and now I am among the people who see the kind of harm that can be done, right? And sure. I think that especially, you know, the the idea that, you know, people were being manipulated through uh, through posts on Facebook and that their their sort of electoral behaviors were being somehow steered and manipulated in ways that were not uh, disclosed, you know, I think that the, I think that that has really been what has touched a nerve. Yeah. Right. Is, is the idea that this content is being sort of managed by platforms in ways, you know, that are kind of, uh, uh, sort of, um, allowing unfair, you know, uh, sort of immoral manipulation 
mm-hmm. of people's behaviors. Um, so that's a that's a that's a hard nut to crack, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but I think actually in there you raise something that, that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I've been meaning to write about this, and I haven't yet. Um, and it's it's something that I think gets left out of most of these discussions, which is the the due process element to it, right? And I think actually, you know, with Twitter's most recent announcement about sort of how they're going to to adjust some of their moderation, they're actually saying that now if somebody gets suspended, they're actually going to explain specifically why and what, or at least uh, point to which rule they're accused of of breaking. But but that you know, so that gives you at least a little bit more information than what they were currently doing, which was just this black box, right? <laughs> you know? um, but but I do wonder more about the sort of whole due process, and and I've had this conversation with with a few platforms and 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 one in particular that said that basically they have you know when they're making a decision about you know suspending an account or not they actually try and set it up like an internal trial and they'll actually appoint um someone to sort of represent the user and then you know somebody else will sort of represent the you know the platform and, and the decision of and they'll they'll sort of argue it out as a you know informal internal trial but you know part of my question is like well you know should that information be public should should that you know, should 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 there be sort of a court system for these kinds of things, some sort of you know judicial system to to handle this, where where a person can appeal on their own behalf, and and you know whether or not you need advocates for. It. I mean, you know, you, you could make something that's much more complex and and creates all sorts of other problems. Our judicial system is certainly uh, not not wonderful at times either. But like, it, it feels like if we're going to put so much weight on these platforms, at least there should be some discussion about the due process elements of, you know, when you take down something and, and, you know, or suspend an account and that there should be some sort of clear appeals process um, that, that people can follow. And, and, and that may take a lot of, you know, experimenting to figure out what the appropriate setup is. Um, But at at least you can, you know, it, it fixes the sort of, um, at least some of the black box situation that we face right now. Yeah, I mean, I think the scalability question is a really important one there, yeah. right? Because how many of these tiny mini trials can these platforms <laughs> really be having, yep. right? When they're dealing with, you know, billions of, you know, daily active users. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I think that's right. I mean, you need something that's scalable. But like, you know, if you look, for example, at YouTube's content ID system, mm-hmm. right, which is that kind of... Uh, filtering system that allows, uh, you know, uh, sound recording copyright holders and musical work copyright holders to put, you know, all of their, uh, all of their intellectual property into a database and user uploads will be sort of matched against that database. And if there is an infringing file detected, uh, there will, you know, there will be a block uh, on that upload. But Content ID has those kinds of, uh, has sort of an appeals uh, procedure kind of baked into it, mm-hmm. right? And that's all done kind of in a computerized, automated way. And it's not entirely clear to me why these larger platforms can't automate that process, right? And just have a kind of electronic appeal system where, you know, the user doesn't have to rely on some engineer, you know, or some customer uh, experienced person at the platform trying to imagine what the user would argue <laughs> if the user were making sure. an argument, right? I mean, like, why not let just let the user speak for him or herself? Sure. Um, of course, I mean, but that raises other issues, which is, I mean, especially on the smaller platforms like that, you know, then suddenly do smaller platforms have to do the the same sort of thing? 
um, and is that overly burdensome for the smaller platforms? Well, I mean, we would get that if we tried to legislate this, sure. right? But you could yes. imagine a world in which, you know, the larger platforms would just sort of do this because it's the sensible thing to do, right? right. right? Um, I mean, right. I think once you get into legislating this, you have problems with the fact that, you know, uh, we think the real wrongdoers and problem causers here are, are sort of these super giant platforms but then, you know, all over the Internet, we have all of these smaller platforms that do not have the resources of a Facebook or a Google. Right. right? And who can't afford to to sort of operationalize these incredibly elaborate systems in order to earn some safe harbor from liability. Yeah. You know, but I can imagine like a lot of things that some of these sites could do now and and you know for facebook and twitter and the more well capitalized ones you know uh they certainly can't argue that they don't have the resources yeah. to try to build some some due process into their decision making about content removal yeah but then and then again you know the sort of flip side to that is you, you know you look at content id and that's pretty widely abused too at times and and the sort of automated push button nature of it um, almost makes that easier and people feel like they can get away with it. I mean, we had a story recently of, you know, content ID extortion where where a guy was literally going around, uh, you know, pulling down videos and then sending notes saying like, haha, I got your video taken down. Contact me if you want it back up. Um, and, you know, like, well, you can argue that the, whoever gets the video taken down can then go through the process, but that process doesn't always work so well either once when it's automated and you can't explain, like, someone's trying to extort me. <laughs> um, you know, so it's... But these are, so so one difference I see here, uh -huh. right, is, um, you know, that, that, uh, that the whole that the, the DMCA process is driven by sort of like other third parties making complaints about third party content. Right. Right. But a lot of the removal decisions that we're seeing now are decisions that are happening sort of internally to the platforms. True. Right. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily uh, initiated by some third party complaint about something. Right. Right. And I think when the platform yeah. is making a decision that content should come down. Right. Because somebody has flagged it in the community or something like that. Um, you know, you, you might expect that there would be a, a ready explanation. Right. Um, yeah, but I mean that. I mean that that line could get fuzzy too. I mean, if you're talking about somebody in the community flagging it, how different is that from right. a third party complaining about you know this is infringing on my. Well, one of the things that they do is they have you know some of these platforms have developed systems of trusted flaggers. That's right, true. where they yep. have certain notifiers who are given a kind of special status because they have proved in advance to the platform that they can be trusted and don't behave abusively. Right. And so I think on some of these platforms, some organizations, uh, you know, have been actually given some latitude. And I don't know that they've been given access to the back end of the systems or anything quite that dramatic. Right. right? But they, they are kind of given a sort of special status so that if they're making complaints about content, uh, those complaints are sort of regarded a little bit differently in terms of their reliability than, con than, than, than complaints that are just coming in at random from from right. other users. And so that's one way to try to tackle it. I mean, I, I don't think we're ever going to get nice bright lines here, right? And I yeah. don't think we're ever going to get a system that can operate at the kind of scale these platforms are operating, you know, without some, you know, latitude in the system for abuse, right? And so I yeah. think that it just becomes about trying to be as transparent as possible 
as systematic as possible, as consistent as possible yeah. uh, in these decisions. Because a lot of it has to do too with with sort of trust that the platforms are applying their own rules evenly, right? Um, yep. You know, that they're not, that the platforms are not sort of, uh, uh, you know, imposing some kind of political agenda that they have, <laughs> right, right uh, on users. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, like I said, like these platforms all have these community standards kind of in place, right, buried in their terms of service. It's just now it's become incumbent upon them, I think, to develop operationally a system of enforcement for enforcing those standards that, you know, that, that allows people to have a voice when they think that they have had their content removed unfairly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's a, a really good point though. The one, and we're, I could talk about this stuff for hours, <laughs> but, but, but we, we do need to wrap up soon. So, but, but you know, one thing that occurs to me in, in listening to this though, and, and I, I, I mostly agree with you, but, but one concern that I have, um, and, and I, you know, I think I'm, you know, probably 99% in agreement with you on most of this, but, um, you know, we point to things like, you know, well, the larger platforms can do this, that, or the other thing. Um, but, you know, one thing that we saw, you know, YouTube created content ID and, and for all its problems, it, it's also, you know, pretty impressive actually. Um, but once it created that, then suddenly you had people claiming, well, now everyone should basically do that. And in fact, you know, there's a push, especially in Europe right now to yep. effectively require um, any site to 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 put in place a content ID like system for for copyright infringement. And so there is at least some worry that like, yes, these larger platforms may be able to put in place these kinds of systems. But then once once it's been shown that it's been it's doable, suddenly people think, well, that must be easy to then force everyone else to do, even though it would be, you know, cost prohibitive um, for, you know, basically anyone who's not, you know, one of those, you know, top 10 uh, internet platforms. No, it's true. I mean, and it's, you know, we totally, we've seen it happen with content ID and in, in the whole context of the digital single market, uh, uh -huh. you know, copyright reform that's going on in the EU. But I'll also say, uh, that attempts to introduce a filtering obligation into the EU copyright regime uh, have been met with pretty yep. serious resistance, right? Yep. And uh, and all of these issues uh, have been raised in consultations, uh, and, and the points you make are absolutely true, right? There's the sense that, that somehow just because Google can do it, right? Uh, everybody should have to do it. <laughs> right. And I think that part of, part of what's important about that is actually trying to educate policymakers and everybody else about the expenses that are associated with those kinds of programs. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, and also th then you get into kind of uh, sort of antitrust or sort of competitive issues. Right. <laughs> yeah. When when the only major providers of filtering services are, you know, YouTube and Audible Magic. Right. Which is which is the other sort of big player that operates. Uh, right in this space and and then suddenly you have legislators saying you know we think you have to get audible magic right and 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 i think we've always agreed as a matter of technology policy that it's not a good idea for policymakers to to pick winners and losers right right in terms of applicable technologies and so the point you make is a good one you know but i also think that there just has to be an effort to say, uh, no, in fact, it's not true that just because <laughs> Google can do this, uh, everybody else should have to, right? And these are the reasons why. 
Yeah. And, and, and I hope that message gets through. I mean, you know, it, it seems to go back and forth. The, the EU consultation, you know, I think that that message has been may, you know, has, has been expressed. I don't know how well it's been heard. Um, and so well, part of the beauty of the EU system, and this is true of the DMCA as well, is that there are provisions in that system that say there is no general duty for platforms to monitor content. Right. Right. And and all of these requirements of sort of uh, automated filtering systems run up against that problem because filtering systems, you know, where you're screening everything on upload uh, completely sort of mandates for those kinds of systems completely run afoul of those no duty to monitor rules. Yeah. But yeah. the well, yes, <laughs> I mean, we'll see what what we'll comes see out what happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's still in process, and you still have some people who are pushing for effectively. You know, y you can put that language in all you want if you also then put in something that uh, that that more or less forces everyone to monitor no matter what. Then, you know, that that language is you know can can be. Well, yeah, I mean, in the EU, they fight about it because there's no general monitoring obligation, right, right is the thing. And they say, well, this is not a general monitoring right. obligation. It's like, well, if it's not a general monitoring obligation, I'm not really sure what it is. But I guess we, <laughs> right. can, we can fight all day long about what general means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, um, as I said, th this, is, this is really interesting. I could I could keep talking about it. I think I, I covered about one quarter of the stuff that I thought we could talk about today. Um, but 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 I'm not sure everyone listening <laughs> wants to listen to us talk about it for hours and hours and hours. But uh, um, uh, thank you very much for, for joining the podcast and and uh, having a very interesting discussion. Happy uh, to do it. This just means, of course, that we'll have to do it again sometime so yes. we can get to all that good stuff that we weren't able to get to today. Yes, yes, yes. You are definitely welcome back on the podcast in the future. These issues are not going away. Um, I imagine there'll be new things to talk about as well as the other stuff that I, I thought maybe we would get to talk about today. So uh, this was great. And, and thanks so much for, for joining us. And thanks to everyone uh, for listening. And we'll be back next week with another podcast. Thanks. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.